through this chapter. Romans chapter 13, I want to read three verses this morning. Verses 8, 9, and 10. If you have your Bibles, I'll give you just a second. I want you to read along with me. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now about six weeks ago, I I preached on Romans 13, 1-7. I began to get into verse 8. If you have any questions or ponderings about what it means to owe no one anything, I, I dealt with that. I simply don't want to spend the time to go back through that again. I really want us to turn our attention away from that. Paul said we need to pay taxes to whom taxes are due or to whom we owe them and revenues, honor, etc. We're to pay what we owe. That's how we end up owing no man anything, by paying what we owe. We're to settle up. But Paul says the one thing we can't settle up with, the one thing we can't pay off, is love. There's an exception. All the other things we pay for are in one category. Love is an exception. We can't pay it off. No matter how much we pay, the debt is still there. Now let's turn our attention in the direction of love. Here is this thing that Paul wants us to owe all the time, always, to one another. Love each other. For, he's going to explain himself, or he's going to give us reason, or he's going to give us incentive, or he's going to give us fuller Information. Four. Let let me enlighten you a little bit about why I just said what I said. Let me give you some greater encouragement about what I just said. Let me give you greater light. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Now folks, I'll tell you, let me tell you something. When I go to study the word, all sorts of thoughts go through my mind. I had difficulties with this. I had difficulties studying these three. They were a challenge to me. Why? 
Because when I stand up before you, you know what I, I want to say, what God's Word says. I don't want to say what sometimes I feel. And I'm saying this to you because, look, whatever it means that we bring law and love together, we want to say about that union what God's Word says about it, not what you think about it, not the baggage you bring in from whatever religious traditions you have about it. We want to say what God's Word says. Now, some, for some reason, Paul thinks it's beneficial to us to show us the relationship between love and law. And when I came to these three verses, what I'm asking myself is, why? You see, I could say all sorts of stuff. I could just fill you with information about that union, about that relationship. But it's got to be profitable for us, and it's got to be biblical, and it's got to be something that's actually going to take us out of here with an idea about love that helps us. I don't believe Paul just feeds us stuff just to feed us stuff. He says the things he says because they matter. They help us. They inform us. They enlighten us in a way that is helpful to living the life He's calling us to live. And I, I, Let me show you something. Three distinct times He nails this truth. What truth? Well, the truth that there's a connection between love and law. Let's see it. Look there at the end of verse 8. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. You guys all see that, right? If you love, you fulfill the law. That's, is that not what he's saying? Now he says virtually the same thing in, Rome, in, in, in verse 9. He says it a little bit differently. He actually reverses the order. But he hits us with the same truth again. The commandments... Now just ignore all the specific commandments He gives us. He just says the commandments, all these certain ones, and any other commandment, in other words, the commandments are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Or if we turn it around, Paul is saying that love is the sum of the commandments. Then he hits us again a third time with the same truth in verse 10. Love is the fulfilling of the law. Now here's what I want to ask you. How should we think about this? You know what I, you know what I, what I felt as I'm reading this? Is we can't trap ourselves into three verses. We have to breathe the full air of the entire book of Romans when we read this, right? If you don't, you're liable to run in a direction Paul doesn't want you to go. Now, there's a reason he talks this way in these three verses, but if you forget the context of the rest of the book of Romans, you might be led to believe he's trying to say something he's not actually trying to say. What do I, what do I mean by that? I mean, when we breathe in the, the freshness of the whole of Romans, what do you get? You breathe it in. Some 78 times Paul talks about law. But how does that smell to us? Well, it smells like this. I breathe in the truth that by faith I am justified in the sight of God. 
It means that every violation of the law is washed away by the blood of Jesus Christ. And by faith, His righteousness robes me. By the obedience of one, I am made righteous. That's the air that we breathe in Romans when it comes to the law. We breathe in. And we see justified by faith. Propitiation. Christ is the wrath absorber for me. Christ, by faith, when I look to Him, I have peace by His blood. My sins are washed away by His blood. I have a righteous standing by faith in the sight of God. That's the air we breathe. And then, as a justified one, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ is put within me. I become freed from sin. I become a slave to God. Sanctification is working out in my life. By this powerful Spirit, I'm producing these fruits and putting to death the deeds of the body. All God working everything out for my good. Inseparable from the love of Christ. That's the air we breathe. And here's what, here's what I would say. Here's the question I would ask. One of the first questions I would ask. Is Paul coming along and saying, um, since all these things are true, since by Christ's obedience we're made, declared righteous, We're justified by His blood, saved from the wrath of God, now indwelt by the Spirit of God, freed from sin, slaves to God, putting to death the deeds of the body, living sacrifices to God, inseparable from the the love of Christ. Here's a question I ask. Does, Does Paul say that now that all that's true, what we need to do is run back to the law of God? With all that freedom in Christ, with all that inseparability from His love, with all that justification by the obedience of Christ, with all that blood shed on my behalf, indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, do I go back now? Do I take all that blessing and come back and focus on the law? And I would say this, probably not. Why? Now remember, folks, whatever thoughts are going through your head, we need to be biblical here. We need to stand on biblical ground. Why would I say that? Let me give you three quick reasons. For one, in Romans 7, verse 4, it says, My brothers, you've died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another. Listen, you've died to the law so that you may belong. Well, he's just been in the first three verses of Romans 7 talking about marriage. He's talking about being belonging or joined to another, married to Him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. You know, what the, you know what the flavor is that Paul wants us to get? You're divorced from that law. You're now married to Christ. Married to Christ for what purpose? To bring forth fruit. And what is the primary fruit of the Spirit in which you're indwelt? It is love. You see, the picture we get here, I think, I think what Paul wants us to feel in the very air of Romans is the idea with all the liberty we have in Christ, with all the freedom we have in Him, with all the forgiveness we have in Him, with all the acceptance with God based on His merit that we have with Him, 
He's basically calling. Sounds to me like Paul wants us thinking, I'm justified by faith in Christ, justified by the blood of Christ, robed with the righteousness of Christ, indwelt by the Spirit of Christ, married to Christ. I will make Christ my focus. Christ will be my focus. Love will be the fruit that comes out of it. Christ will be my focus. He gets to the place at the end of Romans 13 right here where he says what? He says we are to put on Jesus Christ. He doesn't come along and say put on the law now. Now that I've told you love is joined somehow related to law, put on law. He doesn't say that. He says put on Jesus Christ. And let me tell you something. For a whole chapter and a half, he's been talking about what living sacrifices look like. He's been saying genuinely love one another. He says that we are to love one another with a brotherly affection. He does not appeal to law, 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 law. He's looking at what love looks like. What love looks like. And he's appealing to not thinking more highly of yourself than you are. Living peaceably. Loving your enemies. All the way through. Submitting to the government. Paying your taxes. Folks, I really believe what he's calling us to do in the Christian life is to set our gaze on Christ. But then, but then we have to ask this. But then why does He do what He does? Why take three verses now and show us the connection between the two? Why do that? Well, okay, let, let, let's start out by saying, well, what is law? Love fulfills the law. You look at the very context there, what does law mean? Clearly, it at least includes what? The Ten Commandments, right? Because he's listing some of them. So, at least law means that. But then he says something interesting after he gets done listing some of them. He says, and if there's any other law. Right? Which would tend to probably broaden us out a little bit into more of the whole Mosaic law. Right? And what was the Mosaic law? How many were there? About 613 given in the first five books of the Old Testament. But then didn't Jesus Christ even broaden it out maybe a little bit more? He said... Loving our neighbor as ourself is the second commandment. The first one is love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But He said upon love hangs what? All the law and the prophets. I mean, basically what we might gather is, look, love fulfills basically everything and anything God has ever commanded us, instructed us, exhorted us, Love comes back to the heart of that. You know, isn't that interesting? I, the thought occurred to me repeatedly throughout the study of these verses that what, what an amazing thing that teaches us about God. That every commandment He gave us is actually rooted in love. It's, all His commandments are relational. This is very interesting to me. There speaks something about the character of God. And then it made me think, and isn't it interesting, then Christ comes and He does all these miracles to prove He's the Messiah. And what are they all rooted in? Love. Protecting people. Healing people. Feeding people. Delivering people from demons. That really speaks right to the heart of our God. So law, what can we say? Well, definitely the Ten Commandments, probably the whole Mosaic, and even the Law and the Prophets, which would be just about anything that you could find that's taught to us, instructed to us, commanded of us in the Old Testament. It all hangs 
on love. Well, what does fulfill mean? Love fulfills love, the law. Well, basically, I think we can say this. Love by its very nature fulfills the requirement of any and every law God ever gave, which would mean what? Seem to indicate that if you love, when you love, as you love, God's intention behind His commandments to us is being satisfied. To love is to satisfy the demands of the law. That's what fulfill means. That's what it means to... The, the sum of the commandments is found in love. It basically means I satisfy the demands of the law when I love. Every commandment of the law is in some way an expression of love. Love is the heart and soul of the commandments of God. And when I love, they're fulfilled. So that's pretty easy. Well, what about love? I don't know that I definitely want to define love right now, but what I want to do is tell you this. The New Testament says some pretty interesting things about it. Like Paul's saying, look, don't owe anybody anything but love. He seems to, of all the things we can owe men, he says, this is the chief thing. This is the thing that always is owed. You can pay your other debts. You can't pay this. This is the outstanding, unpayable, we need to be trying to pay it, but you can never get to the place where it's paid kind of thing. And in other places, Paul says this, look, we've got faith. We've got hope. We've got love. These three. 1 Corinthians 13.13 But he says the greatest of these is love. Paul comes along and he says, look, if you're going to owe anybody anything, owe them love. He says, we can talk about faith, we can talk about hope, we can talk about love. Let me tell you what the chief one of them, the three is. It's love. He also says this in Galatians 5.6 In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. But what? Faith working through love. You know, we can get all hung up about all sorts of things. Well, do they homeschool over there? Do they do this? Do they wear that? Do they, do they have this? What are, what are they doing in their life? You know, we can get so hung up on the peripheries of Christianity, and Paul comes along and says right here, this is the heart of the matter. It is love. It is faith working through love. It is, in other words, a love that is fired by what I believe. In 1 Timothy 1.5, he says, the aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Well, let's just let, let Peter chime in here. Peter says this in 1 Peter 4.8, Above all. Above everything else. Keep loving one another earnestly or fervently. Folks, let this sink in. Literally in the sight of God, there is nothing in the Christian more desirable or more pleasing to Him than that holy aroma of that most Christ-like affection, namely, love. Just think about that. The aim of our charge, the aim of our ministry is love, faith, hope. But love is the greater of all the things you never want to get done owing anybody, it's love. Above all, keep loving. All those other things count for nothing. What counts is faith working through love. So, here it is. Verses 8, 9, and 10 of Romans 13. What makes that so challenging, at least challenging to me, is this. Why does Paul suddenly bring up Law in his discussion 
concerning love. Love is really, really, really essential to the Christian life. We've just seen that. If there's anything Paul wants to encourage us to do, it's love ours. And you know what? He does something in verse 8. He says, Oh no one anything except to love one another. For. Okay. Paul, it looks like you're going you're gonna to give us a reason for this. It looks like you're going to try to give us something that's an incentive. For is kind of like because. Pay the debt of love you owe to one another because the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. What's challenging to me is how that works. How am I to be encouraged to render my debt of love to you, to others, more profoundly, with greater depth, by knowing that if I do so, I fulfill the law? I mean, Paul says it three times. Love fulfills the law. How does it help me to know that truth that when I love others, we fulfill the law? How does that help me? One thing's apparent to me that it definitely seems that Paul thinks it's necessary to bring up right here. He spends three whole verses seeking to drive that into our thick skulls. Love fulfills the law. So what is there in that that ought to really fire me up to aggressively, fervently love others? That's the question that I have. As I peered into this, that's what I kept thinking. Lord, how does this help me? And again, things might come to your mind. Well, it helps me because the law basically gives backbone to love. It, It helps explain what it is. Well, the problem with that is that's not what he says. But yes, I don't know how to love unless I have law. Yeah, but that's not what it says. I'm looking at what does it say? What does Scripture actually say? Why bring that in? We might have a whole lot of thoughts about how the two join together. But all I want to do right now is just pull out about three things that I think are unmistakable from the Word of God. Which I don't think you're going to argue with me. Well, the last one, you might. The last one, I know is going to be controversial. But I think it's biblical. Look, you know what I really want from you folks? Not to believe what I say. I want you to have your eyes staring in your Bibles and saying truth. Truth. What He's saying is truth. If you don't have the Berean spirit, you'll be led led astray by everybody. Just because I say it today, somebody else will say something different tomorrow. But if you guys are convinced from the Word of God, then, then you've got conviction there. You'll stay there. Now brethren, you just ask yourself this. Here's, here's the, what are some of the incentives for knowing that love fulfills law? The first one I have, which doesn't focus so much on the law, but it focuses on the kind of love that fulfills the law, is this. Notice what kind of love does fulfill the law. Now look, at times, which is going to take us to verse 9, but at times I've heard, it seems like maybe even Wednesday or the Wednesday before, I heard one of you young guys asking God to teach you to stop loving yourself and help you to love others. And look, I'm certainly not going to try to stop you from praying that. But brethren, that might not be exactly in line with the language we get from our Bibles. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 9. It says that we fulfill the law when we do what? Love our neighbor 
as we love our own self. All the commandments, the Ten Commandments and any other commandment as well, they're all summed up, they're fulfilled when we love our neighbor as ourself. Now how is this an encouragement to love? Well, think about it. You know what we find here? God assumes that we do love ourselves. He does. And let me tell you something Paul isn't doing. He's not commanding us to love ourselves, but neither is he commanding us to not love ourselves. He, by quoting Moses, which by the way Jesus quoted as well, and James quoted as well, is making the assumption that we do love ourselves. It doesn't attack it. It doesn't criticize it. It doesn't condemn it. It doesn't forbid it. But what it does is it makes an assumption that self-love is a fact. People love themselves. I've heard somebody say before, you know, they can talk about things like suicide being expressions of self-hate. Brethren, that's just simply not true. People don't kill themselves because they hate themselves. They kill themselves because they love themselves. Because they are trying to spare themselves from pain that is overwhelming them in this life that they want an escape from. It's not self-hatred. It's self-preservation. They really think that killing themselves is going to put them in a better situation. And look, let me tell you this. The very heart of the Gospel is an appeal to your self-love. Listen to me. When Jesus Christ comes along and He says it's better for you, wait, what kind of language is that? It's better for you. That means seek your best good. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two feet to be thrown into eternal fire. Now why in the world would Jesus argue this way unless He meant to appeal to your sense of self-love and self-preservation and self-good? He doesn't say we should hate ourselves and just allow ourselves to be thrown into hellfire. He says, no, do what's for your greatest good. That's, that's Doing what's for your greatest good is an evidence of self-love. Now look, I'm not talking self-esteem here. And I'm not talking pride. I'm talking just that innate desire for our own happiness and our own good and our own preservation. Christ Himself appeals to that self-love. So Paul is not implying that the love that fulfills the law is a love that depends on all of us self-loving people to stop loving ourselves and start loving others. He isn't saying that this law-fulfilling love for others depends on the death of our own self-love. He doesn't say we just... You know, we have longings for joy. We have longings for satisfaction. I do, you do. He doesn't throw, say, pitch them out the window. He doesn't say take all those desires, all those longings, all those cravings for pleasure and joy and happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction, throw them out the window. And then go over and take a lifeless list of laws and out of duty go over and try to, try to fulfill it. That's not what He says. What He says is is take all that passion that you have for good, for pleasure, for all these things. Take it all. Let the force of that drive you. Self-love is all about my happiness, my desires. Self-love is about wanting Christ, 
being awed, overwhelmed by his glory. I mean, isn't that what we want? Folks, are there any of you who don't want to enjoy the pleasures at his right hand forevermore? I mean, are you going to say, nope, I'm bent on self-hate. I don't want those pleasures. That's just insanity. We do want those pleasures. I want Christ. Why? Because in my estimation, Christ is going to bring me the most joy, most satisfaction, the most awe, the most fullness forever and ever. That's what I want. That's what I pursue. And Paul isn't coming along and saying, well, throw it all out, dump it all, go to the law, that's how you love. What he's saying is, let that passion be the measuring rod, the measuring stick of how you love others. Look, how do you love yourself? You love yourself pretty passionately. You, lo you love yourself pretty regularly. Pretty constantly. Pretty eagerly. Pretty efficiently. You love yourself with innovation. I mean, you're pretty creative when it comes to loving yourselves, are you not? You like it. You're, you're pretty constant. You're involved in this thing. You know what? Paul doesn't come along and say, well, take your love for yourself and curb it, kill it, ignore it. He rather says, take it, grab it by its head, stare it in the eyeballs, and make that the standard by which you love others. You want those things for others? Do you love yourself energetically? Well, then what? Love your neighbor as yourself. Do you love them do you love yourself enthusiastically? Do you love yourself regularly, creatively, spontaneously, meticulously, intentionally, by design, with diligence, with imagination? Do you love yourself with cunning and resourcefulness, with forethought, with ingenuity? So be it. There's your standard. Love others by that standard. That's the first thing. See, that encourages us to love others. Not to dump this whole thing. Let passion. And the thing, folks, as Christians, the thing we want more than anything else is Christ. And so passionately seek to bring others fulfillment in Christ. I mean, yes, we can talk about things. Do you feed your own body? Yes. Well, then feed others. Do you clothe yourself? Yes. Well, then clothe others. But more than anything else, if you think that the heart and soul of your desires and your passions rest in Christ, then do everything in your power to bring other people to Christ. That's love. Just, like I say, grab it, look at it in the eyeballs and say, okay, there's my standard. Now look to others and go do likewise. Love your neighbor as yourself. That is the kind of love that fulfills the law. Second thing is this. New Testament Christianity does not negate or relax or annul the law of God. Right? You all agree with that? Look, if it's true as we have seen that it is, that love is the aim of our Christian life, of Christian ministry, it's the chiefest, it's the most important above all, if that's right, if that's so important in the Christian life, and indeed it is, Love is even greater than hope or faith. Love counts for everything. If it's the pinnacle of Christ-likeness, the very heart of what it is to be a living sacrifice to God, as we did see back in Romans 12, love one another genuinely. Love with brotherly affection. Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Even love your government. If love fulfills the law... 
I mean, basically, if you have that, if you have the fact that love is that, and if it's so important, and couple that to the fact that love fulfills the law, then we know something for certain, right? We know that whatever it means to be a follower of the Lamb of God, we know for certain that New Testament Christianity cannot negate law. Why? Because the very chief thing we're called to in Christianity fulfills the law. I don't negate the law when I fulfill the law. You all agree? And if love is at the very heart of this thing, then no way, no how does Christianity ever, 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 ever annul, disregard, relax the laws and the commandments of God. That is so important that we hear. That is so important that enters our ears. Christianity doesn't do those things. If law is the hallmark, or if love is the hallmark of our life as a believer, love fulfills the law, then Christians in their attempts to love are necessarily keeping the law to whatever degree they love. Why is this so important? I'll tell you why this is important. Because if we listen to this with Jewish ears, or we listen to this with the ears of some, some even in this place at times have become upset about quoting Scripture where it says we're not under law, we're under grace. They become all unglued. Why become unglued over, over Romans 6.14 where it says that? I'll tell you why people become unglued. And I'll tell you why Jews listening to Paul saying, above all things, we need to owe love. Because they're saying, well wait, we've got a law, we've always put hope in the law, we've been taught that law from very early on, we like the law. And that's been one of Paul's... He's been concerned about this through the book of Romans. He wants to show what the law cannot do, but he also wants to defend it. And he never wants to create Christianity as this thing that somehow just voids it, undoes the law, gets away from it. Because what, can, what it can sound like when we say we're not under law, but we're under grace, it can sound like we're saying that as Christians we become lawless. Right? We're not under law, which what can be heard is, oh, he's saying then that the, the, the very nature of that law is kind of separated from Christianity. That fulfilling that law, keeping that law, doing that law, which, by the way, the law of God is an expression of the will of God. They're basically looking at that and saying, this is our God. This is what He said. These are His commandments. If now Christianity comes along and says, oh, no, void, we're, we're out of there. But Paul never says that. Christ never said that. In fact, Christ came along and He said, look, if you relax one of these laws or you teach other men to do, you're going to be counted least in the kingdom of heaven. And Paul never wants us to think that. But here's the question. Not being under law, but under grace, certainly does not mean that Christianity makes shipwreck of the law of God. Just the opposite. Men and women living sacrifices for Christ, living sacrifices unto God when they love, they do indeed fulfill the law. But what I would ask is this, how does this fire me up to be a more aggressive lover of others? And I would say this, it frees us. 
If Paul says that we must love, which he does, and if that love fulfills the law, which it does, and if at the same time I'm not under the law, but under grace, which as a Christian I am, that must mean that I'm free to love and fulfill the law, and even if I ever fail or fall, the law no longer condemns me because I'm under grace. I can love freely without fear. You see, I can love, I can love, I can love, I can love, I can fulfill this law, but I'm not under the law. Yes, what the Spirit of God works in me, that primary fruit, being married to Christ, produces something in me that is an actual fulfilling of the law, but the fact is, I'm not under law. So though I love and I love and I might fail, guess what? I'm not condemned. And that frees me. That frees me to love and to love and to love. That encourages me to go forth. I no longer... Look, I don't approach life like this where I've got this thundering law over my head and when I mess up, it's like, oh no! Man, I've messed up! Now somehow I've got to pay God back. Now somehow I've got to make this right. Folks, that kind of thing, you expose yourself to every kind of condemnation that comes from the devil, these accusations, self-indictments from your own heart, charges against you that anyone else might make. You fall, you fail. People say this, people see that. Your own heart says it. The devil says it. Look, I'll tell you this, if you're constantly fretting and fearful and frozen and crushed and numbed and terrified by the thunderings of the law whenever you fail to fulfill that law perfectly, you know what? You never end up loving people the way you ought to. Rather than blessing people, giving to people, rejoicing, living in harmony, living peaceably, you rather withdraw. Your failures condemn you. You become cold. You become mechanical, sulking, self-protecting, defensive, hurting, useless, constantly in this debt mentality. Not where I've got a debt of love to others, but where I've got this debt mentality with God. Where I'm trying to, I'm trying to make the thing right. I'm trying to pay back. It becomes this thing of, of bondage, folks. It becomes utter bondage. It isn't free, but when I'm under grace, not under law, and yet the very love the Spirit of God works in me fulfills the law, then I don't annul, I don't abrogate, I don't relax, I don't ignore the law. But I'm also not under it. I'm not under its curse. The curse has been exhausted. I'm not under its threatenings. There's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. I'm free. I can love and I fall and I get up and I say, praise God, I'm forgiven. Go right on loving. It's not all, you know, I'm going to go home and sulk and hide and man, I can't do this and I can't live up to these rules and they're so rigid. It's free. It frees us. Okay, three. Here's the controversial one. Now look, all I ask you again, I come back to this, all I ask you to do is read your Bibles you can come up to me afterwards and say, brother, I don't think you hit that right. But first, at least, prove this thing to yourself or disprove it biblically. Fulfilling the law is in the realm of possibility. Now that probably makes some of you squirm and nervous. But listen to me. If you listen to this very closely, if you and I talk the way the Bible talks, that's true. 
If we, you know what? We have a tendency to be uncomfortable with the way the Bible talks, and so we talk the way we want to talk. Because we, sometimes we don't really believe what it says, or we haven't figured out correctly why it says what it says, so it makes us so nervous that we refuse to use the biblical language. But I tell you this, it is in the realm of possibility that we fulfill the law from a biblical standpoint. What do I mean by that? Now hear me. Right now you better hear me very carefully because I, I want to make sure you hear what I do say and what I don't say. Before you jump out of your skins and run out of here claiming I'm a heretic, just listen. Love is the fulfilling of the law, right? We got everybody there. Because Paul says it. He says it three times, right? So nobody's going to argue there. And then he says, the one who loves fulfills the law. Which means that whenever I love, I fulfill the essential requirements of God's commandments. Look, as Christians, we're exhorted to love. Let love be genuine, Romans 12.9. It's expected that we love. Christ says this in John 13.35, By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. We are outright and dogmatically commanded to love. 1 Peter 1.22 Love one another. That, that is an imperative. That is a command. Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Love is the primary fruit the Spirit of God works in us. And it's so certain that the Spirit will work it in us. It's so certain that as Christians, we will love if we have truly been born again, truly been saved, that the Apostle John says in 1 John 3.14, we know that we have passed out of death into life. Why, John? How do we know? Because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. 1 John 4.7 Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's pretty dogmatic, folks. That's pretty certain. That's pretty guaranteed. If you've been born again, you're going to love. And as you love, you fulfill the law. Are you guys all, get, are you guys all with me so far? Now listen, Paul doesn't only say this here, he says this also to the Galatians. Chapter 5, verse 13, You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled, he says through love serve one another. The whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. James hits this note. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says you do well. Brethren, let me tell you, when in the New Testament, when fulfilling of the law is expressed, it's dealing with the way you live. You need to understand this. Some people have this idea, well, in New Testament concept of fulfilling the law is when Christ fulfills it for us. 
That's not, that's not what's meant when that language is found in our New Testaments. Now, it's true by the obedience of one, the many are made righteous. That's true. That's true that we become the righteousness of God in Him. That's true that we are justified. We who are ungodly are robed with the righteousness of Christ. I don't deny that truth whatsoever. All I'm telling you is this. When the New Testament talks about fulfilling the law, it's not looking at Christ having fulfilled it for us, though that's true. It's looking at us practically, actually, loving and by loving, fulfilling the law. You all with me? So, we want to nail that down. So far, I think you all have to say with me, I'm saying what Scripture says. It says that when we love, we fulfill the law. But here's what happens to us. We come along to the Scriptures, and it's like we demand middle ground. We say, Scriptures, we don't like the way you talk. We want Paul, we want James, we want John to talk about partial love. Imperfect love. We get nervous when we hear that we fulfill the law. That just makes us shake and get mad. I don't like when the preacher says that. Because I look at my own life and I see it as... It sounds so absolute. It sounds so dogmatic. I don't like that. But let me tell you something. This is so often how Scripture speaks. Let me give you a few examples. John 17.6 Jesus Christ says this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Wait, Jesus. Are you talking about the same guys that you said to one of them, get thee behind me, Satan? Same guys you said, you don't know what spirit you're of, they want to call down fire from heaven? The same people who... Seem to be so full of doubt and pride, and always when you're trying to tell them about going to the cross, they're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Are you talking about the same guys? They've kept your word? But isn't that amazing? Scripture speaks like that so often of imperfect people. And it's like, how? How does it do that? Jesus, how do you say that? 1 John 2.10 Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. Whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. I mean, basically, 1 John 2.10 is saying, we love. It doesn't say impartial love. It doesn't say, well, if you make attempts at it, if you try at it. It says, you will love. First, how about 1 John 2.3? By this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. Okay, John, we don't like that. Say if we try to. If, if a lot of times we do, but a lot of times we fall. Say it different, John. Say it different. We don't like that. If we keep His commandments, whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments, is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word in Him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may be sure that we're in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. See, we look at that and we say, wow, John says, if we're in Him, we walk like He walks. If we're in Him, we keep His commandments. And and then we're always out there saying, how perfectly? How much? I mean, where's the cutoff? Because that sounds so absolute. And I am so aware of my own failings 
that when I hear that and I look at that, John, I don't like you talking like that. Because it makes me feel like you're talking about perfection, and if you are, I'm not that, so I must be lost. Which certainly that is not what John wants us to believe. That's not where he's taking us. But just listen to this. 1 John 3 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. Okay, people born of God don't keep on sinning. Oh man, again, that's like, please, John, we didn't want you to say that. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. How about this one? Hebrews 11.11 By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered Him faithful who had promised. You say, why do you bring that one in? I bring it in because of this. The writer of Hebrews says, by faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive. You know what I find when I go back to the Old Testament? I find that she was full of unbelief and she was laughing. You remember that? And I'm looking at this and I'm saying, wait a second, this sounds a whole lot to me like what Christ said about His followers. They've kept your word. She's, she's victorious by her faith. What in the world? I look at the accounts in their lives and I see something different. How can statements like that be made? How, how is it that Christians are described as keepers of God's Word, lovers of men, keepers of the commandments, practicers of righteousness, steady in faith, prayers, payers of our love debt, fulfillers of the law? You might say, hey, that just sounds too good to be true. But you know what? You're all witnesses. The Bible talks this way. And so, we need to talk this way. We need to feel this way. We need to believe this way. Brethren, I believe the Bible talks this way for one very important reason. It's true. What the Bible says is true. I believe that. I do believe that Christians do indeed fit these descriptions. You say, what about our defects? What about those times we fail to love perfectly? How can it be said I practice righteousness? How can it be said I'm a keeper of His commandments? How can it be said I'm a fulfiller of the law? Are you saying I'm perfect? No more than Peter, James, John, Thomas had to be perfect to have it said of them that they keep the Word. No more than what was said of Sarah with her unbelief. You know what? The fact is that we are these things and we are dogmatically these things because they are representative of our life. But more than that, folks, as a believer... I'm telling you that what we do and what we produce in our lives is under the blood. And I'm, you know what? When you come to Christ in faith, every sin is put under the blood. And therefore, as I seek to love, every defect, every imperfection, every failing, every falling short is immediately under the blood. It already has been. When He went to the cross, there was such merit in that. When I come to Christ in faith, 
We are forgiven. It's done. What I come and bring and offer up, I offer through Christ. And God sees it offered through Christ. He sees it perfect. He can look at the love that I offer today and He can look at it and say, He fulfilled the law. How? Was it perfect? No, but the blood washed every imperfection out of it. All of it. I am approved before God. I am accepted in Christ. And we, we need to really let that, let that sink in. He's freed us from our sins by His blood. As a Christian, the blood of Christ has so thoroughly washed the guilt out of my works, God can look at me and say, He's kept my word. I guarantee you, folks, that's true. Just as much as it could be said of Peter, who had his imperfections, it can be said of us if we're in Christ. When I seek to love, every imperfection is blotted. It's washed. It's been cleansed. It's cast as far as the east is from the west. But I'll tell you this, if you're not in Christ, every defect is laid to your account. And your condemnation is only building up. It's only in Christ that we are freed. Now I want to say one other thing before we, before we stop here. There is a group of people in this room that are fulfilling the law. Though to our eyes, it almost seems unbelievable. I mean, is it even... Folks, I think we just think it's, it's too good to be true. Well, we have to come to grips that this is exactly what the death of Christ has accomplished in our behalf. Now here's what I want you guys to think about as I end up here. How does this encourage me to love? Well, I want you to look right now at Romans 8 and verse 3. And I'm just going to end on this. I'm not going to say a lot about it. But one very important hermeneutic what is a hermeneutic? It is, a, it is an approach to understanding our Bibles. Hermeneutics is the study of interpretation. How do we interpret what the Bible says? The Bible says a lot of things and uses a lot of words, and sometimes words can have various meanings. Law can mean different things. Righteousness can mean different things. There's all sorts of words that have different meanings depending on where they're used. One of the things that we need to learn to do is interpret Scripture with Scripture. A very important hermeneutic is we want to see how words are used in other places and then use them in the same way. Romans 8.3 God is done with the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin He condemns sin in the flesh. Now you watch these words very closely. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled, the law, the requirement of the law, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Is that, is that not language we've become familiar with? Not for us. Not as though Christ worked out that righteousness for us in our behalf, which is true. But what's being said here is that God has done 
what the law could never do. And what has He done? He's produced the righteous requirement of the law in us. Fulfilled in us. Who walk. He's talking about the way Christians walk. Not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And He goes right on after this to say, look, the lost, those in the flesh, they do not submit to God's law. Indeed, they cannot. You see, He's talking, but He says, but you are not in the flesh. In other words, you do keep the law. You do uphold the righteous requirement. Now let me tell you, you search this out. Look at the word fulfilling of the law. Every single time in the New Testament it's used, it is, it's got to do with our actual loving and keeping it and fulfilling the requirement of it. Nowhere is that kind of language used with regards to justification. It's used with regards to our actual loving and producing this righteousness in our lives. I think if, if some of you will come to grips with that meaning in Romans 8.4, it will help you in light of other things. Let me tell you, if we backtrack a little bit into Romans 7, I don't care whether you believe that is a Christian or not a Christian, but I'll tell you this, what Paul says there is, I have the law, I delighted in the law, I knew the law, I agreed with the law, but what? But, he says in verse 19, the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And when he comes to Romans 8.4, he says, look, In 8.3 rather, God has done what the law never could. What can the law by itself never do? It can never produce the ability to fulfill it. It never could do that. Weakened by the flesh, it could never do that. Never. And that's whatever. Look, I don't even think Romans 7 is chiefly dealing with whether the guy's a Christian or not a Christian. That's not the issue. The issue is really at heart. Is law by itself, does not produce the ability to fulfill it. Those in the flesh cannot keep the law. But you as lovers of men, fulfill it. And how do we get to the place? This is the encouragement, folks. As Christians, God did what the law couldn't do. And He did it by sending His Son. We have Jesus Christ who came. And look, When it says He condemns sin, you need to read it how it says it. Don't read into it what you think. Read into it what it says. It doesn't say God condemned Christ. It says Christ condemned sin. And in Romans 6, 7, and 8, how is sin described? It's described like this dark force that seeks to rule in us and control us. And we're not to let it reign in our mortal flesh. We're not to let it reign. It seeks to reign. It seeks to rule But sin no longer has dominion. Why? Because Christ came and condemned that sin and He broke its dominion. And the fact is, folks, we can love and we can be fulfillers of the law. And we're not like those whose minds are set upon the things of the flesh who cannot submit to that law and cannot keep it because you're not like them. That's exactly what He says In Romans 8-9, you, however, are not in the flesh. Which means, you do submit to God's laws. This is not what John says. If you say that you know Him and you're not keeping His commandments. Brethren, 
I want you to feel the freedom of what Christ has accomplished for us. You don't... You say, I'm, I, I'm not like that sister over there. She just seems so loving. I'm just... My nature... I'm just... I'm hard. I see. I, I think that all the time. I look at my wife and I think, Lord, I'm not like that. She's so gracious to people and I come in and just annoy people. And <laughs> But you know what? If I wasn't in Christ, I could just get all discouraged over that and I could just throw in the towel. But the fact is, I realize this. I do have a love for people. And Christ is wrought it there. A love I never had for people before. I want to help people. I want to give to people. I want people to come to Christ. You guys don't know how much joy I have felt over, over Julie over here. Um, but you know what? We don't have to get all discouraged, all condemned, all pinned down over our failures. I mean, just phenomenal. Phenomenal, folks! How is it? I mean, you can imagine these, these Christians, they're all... You know, they're just shocked by the awe and the glory of Christ. And then He looks at them and says, well done, good and faithful. Well done? Yes! I was naked. You, you came and clothed me. I was hungry. You fed me. When did, when did we do all that? And we're thinking, we, we're so often we're such people of, of sight and, and sound and earth and flesh. and We have to realize... What that Spirit of God is working in us is true. It's real. We do become those things. And every defect is just its under the blood. Folks, it will be said of us the way it was said of them. They have kept Thy Word. They have kept the faith. They've loved one another. In all their imperfections, it's like God looks at Sarah and says, I don't, I don't even remember her laugh of unbelief. It's like Christ looks at Peter and He says, I don't even remember his pride. I don't remember Thomas's unbelief. I don't remember John and James' unwarranted zeal. It's under the blood. God did what the law could never do. And I'm telling you, I'm telling you, love fulfills the law, but the very heart and the essence of the Christian life is not to run to the law. It isn't. When Paul ran to the law, all he did was produce evil. That's, that's, you read Romans 7 right, you can't come to any other conclusion. And God did what the law couldn't do by sending His Son. And next week, probably, we're going to look. What Paul wants us to do is not robe ourselves with law. He doesn't want us gazing on law, fixing our attention on law. He wants us fixing our attention on Christ and robing ourselves with Christ. He says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith, folks. Faith. Paul sets Christ out there as the one who did for us what the law couldn't do because he wants our attention and our focus there. Do we throw the law out? Do we undo it? No, our faith, folks, establishes the law. It fulfills the law. It's consistent with the law. It's that upon which all the law 
hangs. Think it's biblical? I think it is, folks. I think it's biblical. I think it's biblical to think that way. Christians, you are fulfillers of the law. Press on. In all the freedom of Christ, above all things, love one another. In that glorious freedom of Christ, Well, now may God help us to go actually love others the way we love ourselves. Amen? Amen. You're dismissed.